Thank you, Scott, and good morning uh, again to all of you on this beautiful uh, Sunday morning with a nice little gentle snow falling down, and uh, what a beautiful day it is, and it is good to be here with you and with those who are uh, watching us online as well. Well, as um, uh, Brendan and Scott mentioned in the prayer, we are kind of beginning a new sermon series. We'll talk about that uh, here over the next few minutes, but we are excited about that about going through the New Testament here in 2021. And it's good to be able to be here and to preach today. I've had a, a few Sundays uh, off, which has been kind of nice. Um, so thank you to Pastor Stan and Pastor Scott and Elia, who preached uh, last week. And, you know, it's always uh, it's uh, great to be able to uh, just listen to how um, others will uh, their take on this and to learn something and just be in the seats. I really appreciate that. And uh, it's also kind of given me an opportunity to think through a little bit more about our sermon series coming up and uh, especially in, in the Gospels over the next few months. And so if you have been reading along with us, you know that we are uh, kind of been looking through the first few chapters of Matthew. And uh, again, um, whoever is preaching will be preaching on something that you guys have read during that previous week. And so uh, this week we are going to take a look at the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 12 through 23. So I invite you to hear these words. Here's what Matthew says. Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And as he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, and the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we pray that you would be with us in this time. And though these words penned 2,000 years ago, we pray that you would reveal to us how that same Spirit continues to be with us even now. May we hear you in this time. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts, will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So it seems good and right that we are starting or kicking off this sermon series by looking at this particular passage in Matthew, because uh, this is a passage, obviously, about uh, discipleship in many ways. You know, Jesus calling his first disciples. And, 
It seems appropriate because uh, one of the characteristics, of course, of a disciple is that uh, he or she should be one who is reading the Scripture so that they can learn more about Jesus, who Jesus was, and what difference that makes. Um, It's also important to be able to read Matthew because then we understand exactly what it means to be a disciple and and who God calls us to be. And so I'm excited to be able to start um, in what is kind of a microcosm of this whole sermon series that we'll be looking at over the next year. And so we start here with Jesus, and Jesus has been baptized by John the Baptist. And uh, if you read earlier this week, you know that already. And then he's kind of gone through successfully the three temptations of uh, of Satan. And now he discovers, or he hears, that John the Baptist has been arrested. So what does he do? Well, we're told by Matthew that he decides to withdraw to Galilee. That's no small thing. It's about 80 miles from where he was. And you know, um, the average donkey is about, you know, two to two and a half miles an hour is what they tell me. And actually, I don't know, I just made that up. But I'm figuring it's not that fast. And so it takes a while to get to Galilee, right? So this is a big deal. And so part of the question that people ask is, why exactly did he withdraw to Galilee? What's the point? And there's probably lots of different reasons. One of those uh, is because of the fact that Jesus, and, and, and I, want, I encourage you guys to, to, to find these places, he's shrewd in his ministry, right? That Jesus knew that he was going to, uh, um, he needed to be here for a little while. I mean, he knew he was going to die, but he also needed to establish his sense of ministry, that he couldn't kind of show up, and then a day later, all of a sudden, then, you know, the officials get him. And so throughout his ministry, right, he, he's, very, uh, he's very shrewd. He will, he, as he does here, he decides to withdraw to get away from the heat. Uh, other times he says things uh, in such a kind of clandestine way that the officials can't quite nail him on it. Uh, there's even a time when there's a whole mob who wants to kill him, and all of a sudden he just disappears, right? So, so Jesus is very shrewd in how he goes about his ministry. It's also pointed out that in Galilee, there are a lot of Gentiles, many more Gentiles than there were in Jerusalem. And so there's also kind of a harbinger of things to come, that the, the ministry of Jesus eventually will begin to reach out into the Gentile world. Uh, also, Scott Hosey has pointed out that, by and large, Galilee was not exactly a, a, a happening place. It was not a financial hub. It wasn't a political hub. It wasn't a social hub. It wasn't a fashion hub. Uh, it wasn't a hub at all. It was kind of like being out in the sticks. And so there's this sense from the very beginning that what Jesus is trying to also help us to see is that there is no unimportant, there is no insignificant place in all of the world. And in fact, as we will continue to see as we read the Gospels, there is also no insignificant person. So Jesus is continually talking to people that no one else will talk to, eating with people that nobody else will eat with, touching people literally and figuratively that nobody else will touch. This is who Jesus is. It's also, though, important, and we'll talk about that today, but then throughout this series, to pay attention to the words that the gospel writers, today at least, Matthew, uses. You see, he could have just said uh, that he then went to Galilee, but he doesn't. He uses the word withdraw. And I asked uh, our Greek resident scholar, uh, Stan Johnson, what that means, or, or is there significance? He says, yeah, because he could have easily, obviously, just said you know, that he went. But there's a sense of withdrawal, which means a sense of of creating space 
to get away, of finding refuge. And again, as you go through the Gospels, pay attention that repeatedly Jesus is getting away from the tumult. Jesus gets away at times when he needs to from the malay. He gets away when the pressures grow too high. He gets away in order to simply be with his Father. He gets away in order to create space, as we talked about a lot during Advent, to meditate, to simply be able to kind of get his, um, to, 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 to kind of focus on what is important. Now, I want you to hear that. Because I have to say that in a time like right now in which we are living, when as I look out at the environment and it seems so often that Christians vary very little from non-Christians in how anxious they seem to be, in how fearful they seem to be, in how full of vitriol at times they seem to be, I would suggest it is a clear indicator that there are far too many of us as Christians who are not creating the space that we need to at times to refocus on who God is, to remember that ultimately it is God who is in control. Here's what I want to tell you. If you are spending all of your time or a majority of your time, and I've said this before, but man, it is a lesson that we've got to learn. If we are spending a majority of our time watching things that bring us fear, listening to people that bring us anxiety, reading the emails, that just make us more and more fearful, then we should not be surprised that we look no different than anybody else. Here's what I'm telling you. When you are surrounded by those sorts of things all the time, you will begin to think that that is all that there is. Let me say it again. When you surround yourself with those things all the time, you will inevitably begin to believe that that must be all that there is. And what followers of Jesus must do is this. It's very simple. Follow Jesus. And if Jesus himself, hear me now, if Jesus himself had to get away at times in order to simply be in the presence of his Father, in order to remember God, in order to create the space to get out of the maelstrom of which, with which he was surrounded, then surely, surely, we must follow him there. And if we fail to do so, we fail at our own peril. And we certainly fail in terms of how we might witness to this Jesus whom we are called to follow. See, three people online already said amen to that. I love this online stuff because I can just make it up all day long. So Jesus is in Galilee, and he's going along the sea, and he sees two people. He sees Simon, to be called Peter eventually, and he sees Andrew. And so he calls them. He says, hey, follow me. And immediately, they follow him. Then he continues on his way, and he sees two brothers, James and John, the son of Zebedee. Now, I never had a son, uh, but if I did, I would be very tempted to call him Zebedee because that is a really cool name, is it not? There's just something strong about Zebedee, right? And so, so he, he calls them, and what do they do? Immediately, they follow him. Now, this is a fascinating little part of this story, and we could really talk about it for a long, long time, but I just want to focus on a couple of things. The first thing, and this is really critical is to realize that from the very beginning it is Jesus who initiates the relationship with these disciples think about this for a moment God 
longs to reach out to us. In fact, God wanted to reach out to us so badly that he sends his son in the flesh and the blood in Jesus, right, as this amazing sign that God was going to make the first move, that God was going to bring Jesus. He wasn't just going to sit, you know, in heaven and say, okay, well, let's just see if anybody, you know, thinks of me. You know, he sends his son, and then once his son is here, and you'll see it again throughout the Gospels, his son then goes and finds him with great intentionality. Jesus does not sit around and just kind of wait and say, well, we'll see if anybody comes. And he, he decides to go and find them. And, and one of the things you need to know is that in that time and place, that was very countercultural. What would happen is that if you were a rabbi, a teacher, disciples or hopeful followers would find you. And they would come and they would find you and they would say, hey, can we, you know, can we follow you? And then the rabbi would decide either yes or no. But that's not the way that Jesus works. Jesus goes out well before anybody could find him and he goes and he finds them. And here's the thing. Not only does he find them, did you notice this? He doesn't ask them to do anything else before they begin to follow him. In other words, he didn't say, hey, Andrew, it's so good to see you. I'd love for you to follow me. I really would. But here's the thing, man, you've got to clean up because that fish, it is nasty. He doesn't say, hey, you know what? Just, you know, as soon as you shower up and you put on some different clothes, I can't wait for you to join me. No, he just says, follow me. Right? He doesn't go up to Andrew, you know, or, or, or to James or to John and say, hey, it's so good to see you. I'd love to just sit down and talk to you a little bit about your past. Can you talk to me a little bit more about when you were 14 and this happened? He doesn't do a background check. What does he do? He says, follow me. He doesn't pull together these four and he says, okay, I'm so glad that you're here. Now, one of the things I need to do is just check to make sure that you've got just the right gifts and talents because there's only a few that are really going to be helpful. And I need to make sure that you have those particular things. No, 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 no. Not at all. As Audrey West says, he simply says, follow me. There is no sense, none at all, that Jesus says, as soon as you have all of these particular things in place, then and only then do I want you to follow me. He just invites them into relationship. Now, we need to talk about this for a minute. You may be saying to yourself, oh, man, we talk about this stuff all the time. And you're right, we totally do. But that's because it's for a couple of reasons why. One because it is absolutely pivotal to our faith. Especially for those of us in the Reformed tradition and the Presbyterian tradition, it is critical for us to remember again and again that it is God who has reached out to us well before we could ever reach out to him. That's what grace is. We also have to continually say it because it is not the culture in which we live. It is incredibly countercultural. There is no sense in which our culture encourages this. And thirdly, it's really important, especially in our setting, because it is not very natural for many of us. You see, we, and I include myself on this, we tend to be a people who love achievement. We love accomplishment. I haven't asked for your GPAs, but I have a suspicion that most of you will have a pretty decent GPA. You love a good goal. You love kind of having something up on the big whiteboard and say, this is where we're going. And, and you love to be able to achieve it. You love to be able to check it off. And even better if you get there faster than somebody else. <laughs> we're 
rascals. Right? We love this sense of achievement, right? We, we love to be able to do that. It gives us this great sense of accomplishment. Ha! We did it, right? And I was thinking about that. I, I, uh, I read a few weeks ago this quote by the actor Will Smith, and I think the quote comes from many years ago. I don't know, but, but, but here's what he said. He says this, the only thing he was talking about, I'm sorry, about what makes him unique or why he's been able to be su successful. He says, the only thing I see that is distinctly different about me is that I'm not afraid to die on a treadmill. You might have more talent than me. You might be smarter than me. But if we get on a treadmill together, there are two things that are going to happen. One, you're getting off first. Or two, I'm going to die. It's really that simple. That is awesome. Right? I mean, I was thinking about this, and I was reminded of, of uh, 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 just a few months ago when I, uh, I joined this new gym. Can you guys, you can tell. And so I joined, this, kidding, uh, you don't have to laugh that hard. And so I joined this new gym, right? And, and so I was at this new gym, and I'd been going there a few times when, when they started this new competition, and it was a 1,200-meter row competition, right? And I, I saw that, and I was like, all right, all right. And, and, and here's the thing, right, is that um, if you're in the top five, men or women, um, um, there's this whiteboard. Now, by whiteboard, let me be very clear. The whiteboard, it's, it's literally like this big, okay? That's, that's it. It's, it's, it's like this big, okay? Uh, you can hardly see it with a microscope, but, but I saw it, and, and, and I saw their names. And one guy on there was in first place. His name was Jim, and I was like, <laughs> sorry about your luck, Jim. And so then they had the competition, right? And so sure enough, in fact, it's ongoing, and it was my turn to do it, and it was 1,200 meters, and I tell you what, I was rowing as if my life depended on this, as if if I didn't get first place, the whole world was going to explode. And so I was just, I was at it. Anybody else ever do this? So I was just at it, man, and I was going. I mean, I'm sweating, and, 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 and finally I finished, and guess what? I actually beat him. I was in first place. Yeah, it's not that exciting. Thank you, thank you. Yes, that's what I really hoped for. So here's the thing, right? And, and I was so excited about it that I, I got up, and it took me a while to get up because uh, I, could, I could hardly move. And so I got up, right, and I kind of went over, and then I sat there, and I watched as they kind of erased Jim's name, <laughs> put my name in first place. It was epic. I took a picture of it. Did I show you that picture, Shaughnessy? No, I will. And um, it was great. It was so great. How pathetic. I'm 46 years old. Two days later, I go back. Dan. Some guy named Dan beats me. And not only did he beat me, let me be very honest, he crushed me. It was as if he could have beat me going one arm. It was so embarrassing. And then a few days later, somebody else beats me. So I just keep moving down the white board, right? And every time I go in there, my blood just boils. Every time I see it, and it's right there on the front desk. It's this small, but it's right there. I just get so angry, and I'm so embarrassed. I'm like, come on. I'm like, you got to do this, right? And it's just, I just, I'm working so hard. I want to be up there because I love this sense of achievement. I love the sense of accomplishment. And when I fall short, it just really makes my blood boil. I'm like, ah. Now, I have a sneaking suspicion that I am not alone in this sanctuary or at home for people who might have some of that same propensity, that we love achievement, we love goals. And the thing is, it works pretty good in the workplace. It even works okay in the gym. But it is murder on relationships and on our What I have seen is far too many people, including myself, 
for whom we think if we, what we need to do is, 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 is in this faith journey that we have to do really well, that we have to really accomplish a lot of things, that we have to really achieve things. We have to work really hard for Jesus. And I'm like, hey, oh, look at that whiteboard. There I am in first place. This is amazing. You see this, God? And we do it out of a sense of needing to hear God say, you did great. I'm so proud of you. Now I'm going to love you. That's not what God says, because the problem is, is that when you have that mentality, you can never stay up on that whiteboard. You are constantly falling off because it is impossible for us to be just perfect enough, just good enough, just accomplished enough for God to love us or to say, well done. No, 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 that's not how God works. And it's much like me getting on a rower next to an Olympic athlete. You will fail again and again and again if you think that the only way for you to gain the love and the attention of God is for you to be good enough and to achieve it. You will never reach that point. You will always fall off that whiteboard. So one of the things that we have to do, and we have to be intentional about this, most of us, is that when we read Scripture, how we tend to read Scripture, those of us who are this achievement, goal-oriented people, we tend to read Scripture with this question, which is, what is God calling me to do? And if you begin with that question, you are going to fall short again and again and again. Instead, the question that we have to begin by asking is, what has God done? What is God doing? That is the lens through which we always must begin to read Scripture. Not by saying, what must I do? But by beginning by saying, what has God done? It is a grace lens through which we must begin to read the New Testament over this next year. Because when we do so, then we have freedom from thinking that we always have to accomplish things, that we always have to some way earn the love of God. But it also then, and only then, gives us the freedom to begin to follow Jesus freely. And to begin to freely follow Jesus wherever he calls us to go, no matter what it may cost. No matter what danger it may bring to our lives. Now, I used the word danger last week with great intentionality, and I'm using it again today. And what I mean by that is not necessarily physical danger, though there are certainly Christians in st still today across the globe who physically end up dying because of following Jesus. But for the majority of us, what I mean by that is it is a danger to what we hold dear, a danger to our own priorities. A danger to our own values, a danger to our own possessions, a danger to our own treasures, a danger perhaps even to our own relationships. That when you have experienced the grace and the love of Jesus, you are then free to follow him no matter what it may cost. Not to earn anything. But because the more you experience God's love and grace, the more you want to be like him, the more you want to follow him.
Think about this. Think about our story. Again, what did I say? We have to pay attention to how Matthew writes things, right? So there he is. Uh, He's going off and he sees Simon and he sees Andrew. And he says, follow me. Now, did you notice what Matthew says or even what he doesn't say? He doesn't say they followed him immediately. That's not what he says. There's something before that. Do you know what it is? Ah, someone from home just texted it in. They left their nets and followed him immediately. Do you hear that? They left their nets and followed him. What does that mean? They left their job. They left their security. They left their identity. They left their purpose. They left who they thought they were always going to be. They left all of those things, and they began to follow Jesus. One of the things that we have to realize is that as we begin to follow Jesus, first in the very beginning, but also throughout the journey, you will begin to drop your nets. You will begin to drop those things that you once held so dear. You will begin to drop those possessions that you thought you absolutely had to have. You will begin to drop those priorities that you thought, surely I must always have this as a priority. You will begin to drop your nets. The more that you begin to follow Jesus, the more you begin to experience his grace and your lo- and his love, you cannot help but begin to drop those things so that you can then walk more lightly and follow him. And, and to make sure that we get this, again, man, man, these writers, they are brilliant. To make sure that we don't think that that was just a typo. They, oh, we just happened to add that. Think about James and John. What does he say? Does he say James and John, after Jesus said, follow me, you know, dropped it and immediately followed him? No. What does, he, what, does, what does Matthew says? It's bad grammar. What does he say? They left their boats and their father and followed him. Right? I love picturing these kinds of things. Right? Can you imagine that scene? There's Zebedee. Mending nets along his boys, all of a sudden some random guy comes along and is like, hey, follow me. And all of a sudden they're gone. Right? Can you, hey, guys, guys, and they're just gone. It's fascinating. What does it mean? It means that they left everything. They left everything, their security, their purpose, their identity, especially when it comes to their father, when a sense where that's where so much family identity was in place in that time. They left all those things. Now, one of the interesting things to pay attention to uh, is, is what you find yourself wanting to be distracted by. I, I've noticed this when it comes to this particular story. What a lot of people like to talk about is, well, you know, it's really weird, isn't it, that they just immediately followed him? I wonder why they immediately followed him. And then they'll just kind of start talking about that. Well, I, hmm, that's a good question. I wonder if they'd already met Jesus. Maybe they'd already met him and they talked to him and then they realized, oh, I like this guy and, uh, you know, maybe, maybe I could follow him. And then Jesus, you know, this is like the second or third time that they've seen Jesus. Or, or maybe something, oh, well, you know what, he already had read uh, or read, they've already read the, the Galilean Gazette and it said a lot about Jesus. And so that they knew as soon as he kind of showed up, like, hey, you know what, we've already read about you will follow you. Or as one commentator uh, this week that I read said, maybe, maybe it's because of the fact that yeah, this was really the first miracle and all he had to say was follow me and there was just something that just turned. Maybe, and maybe all those things are true, but here's what I also want you to let you know. None of those things matter. It's all a distraction. 
Because you know what really matters is what we don't want to pay attention to, which is this, which is that simple reality that they all had to drop something that was near and dear to them. I don't think this is somebody who like, man, I hate fishing. This is the worst. Oh, what a nightmare. Oh, you want us to go do something else? Absolutely. We'll go do anything. I don't think that's the case here. They left everything in order to follow him. And so one of the things then that we need to ask as we continue into this journey in the New Testament is not just this question of how do we, though we begin with the sense of how do we just experience this love and grace of Jesus Christ. But then as we continue to journey, do we have the courage to also ask, Lord, what dangerous thing should I leave What are you calling in my life to change that I might be able to follow you more fully? You see, that tension of grace first, of soaking in that, and then of allowing that grace to examine us and say, Lord, what do you need to change in me? That's a tension that we see not just in this story, but throughout the New Testament. And as I was thinking about that and thinking about this sermon series, I kept saying, okay, what what should we call this sermon series? Is there, you know, these are the big deals. Uh, And so what should we call it? You know, because if it's got a bad name, then it's just the whole thing goes sideways. It's just no good. And and we're going to have this sermon title for almost a year, right? So then you're stuck with it. It's really embarrassing. So I kept thinking about what do I want to call it? And so one of my ideas was, oh, I should, I, we should call it dangerous because I like that, uh, dangerous grace. Oh, yeah. Doesn't that sound great? Jeez. I hate for you to hear some of my other ideas if you don't like that idea. So I thought, okay. But then as I kept thinking about it, I got to tell you, here's the thing I thought. I don't think I've ever thought this before, but I got really frustrated because I said to myself, I wish that we were actually a Spanish-speaking church. Now, why would I say that? Well, because I was remembering, so I took several years of Spanish. I I don't remember very much at all. But what I do remember is this random story that my Spanish teacher taught me, you know, decades ago, which was, you know, when, um, that she was visiting San Francisco uh, and she was getting a tour of San Francisco. And she knew that the the tour guide was was a native Spanish speaker. And so we said, how did you know that? And she said, oh, well, I knew it because every time that she was talking about the gold rush, every time she would say, rush gold. Why would she do that? Well, because in Spanish, that's how it's said. It's actually said rush gold. It's not pronounced gold rush. So she knew because of a different word ordering that that's exactly how they do it. Now, what does that have to do with this? Because here's the thing. I realized that I was thinking about the title of this. I wanted to call this Gracia Peligrosa. And what does that mean? Gracia means grace. Peligrosa means danger. And I thought, that's great. We'll just call it the Spanish name. But then I realized that you guys probably not like that very much. Or maybe, you know, the five or six of you who maybe speak Spanish, they'd be like, oh, this is fun. But the rest of us would just be like, I don't even know what that means. I don't like this. So then I had a big decision to make. I'm letting you in on my week and and the real struggles that I had. And I decided, okay, we're going to do this thing. And we're going to call it Grace Dangerous. Now, to me, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really annoying title. I hate it. I don't like Grace Dangerous. It doesn't sound right. 
But then I thought, well, I like that. Because here's what I'm going to encourage us to do, is that every time you hear that annoying title, you remember it's grace first. So that every time that you are reading, you go grace first. Where is God at work? What has God done? And then every time you're reading, after you've asked that question, then you begin to say, okay, so what is a dangerous thing then to which God is asking of me? Grace dangerous. Now here's the thing. I want to make a deal with you all. Now a deal means that two different groups of people have to be involved. So what is it that I'm asking from you? A couple things. One is this. I'm asking that you actually read the New Testament. Now, Pastor Scott said it's about 20 minutes. Brendan seemed to say it's about 35 minutes a week. I don't know which of those. It depends upon how fast of a reader you are. But either way, it ain't that long. Even if it's 35 minutes, that's five minutes a day. And if you can't give five minutes a day, let me be blunt, you may have some bigger issues. Five minutes a day. That's what we're asking. And I'm asking that you read it grace dangerous, meaning that you read it first through that lens of grace because what I've noticed is that if you don't do so, you will become highly defensive as you read what it is that you may be called to do. Or you will begin to try to do it out of your own strength and energy and you will fail again and again. You see, it's only when we begin with grace, as we begin to do that, all of a sudden it becomes more natural for us to want to try to drop some of those nets, to leave those nets behind. So what am I, what's my end of the deal? Here's my end of the deal. I'm going to do my best to not soften the edges of the scripture that we're preaching on and to not relieve the tension that is so often in scripture. Now that's pretty hard actually for preachers to do. Preachers don't like leaving that tension there. We like to package things up kind of nicely. And that's not easy for a lot of scripture, right? I mean, in a couple weeks, we're going to talk about the story where Jesus calls a woman a dog. I'm not sure I've actually ever preached on that passage. Why? Because it's real awkward to know what to do with it, right? A few weeks after that, I'm going to talk about Jesus um, telling the, the, the rich uh, young ruler uh, that, that he needs to sell everything. Have you ever noticed how, how we preach on that passage? It's called the caveat sermon. Because again and again and again, ah, no, I'm not saying that God's calling you to this. I'm not, that's just, relax, relax. God's, you're, you're good. Keep everything you got. Now, to be sure, God may not be calling everyone to do it. But I also have a sneaking suspicion that there are some people for whom God is calling that. And I also have an even sneakier suspicion that all of us are called to live with the tension of that story and to ask some really hard questions. And we don't like to do that as preachers. You know why we don't like to do that? Because we want to see you next week. And... Because it's also hard for us to think about. Because if God may be calling you to sell everything, ain't no reason that a preacher should be any different. 
And so I'm going to do my best to allow those scripture passages that are uncomfortable and awkward to just stay just like that. You know, I, the, the story I thought of, I have four daughters anyways, is the princess and the pea. Remember that? And you got the little princess, and they don't know for sure if she's a princess, so they put a pea underneath her mattress, and she can't sleep all night. She's like uncomfortable. See, that's my, that's my vision for what a lot of scripture is actually supposed to be. You may not know why, but there's just some reason that it's just underneath your skin and you just can't quite figure it out. Far too often, I and other preachers are probably prone, before we get into Scripture, to begin with the caveat of taking the pee out just so that we can make sure that it feels all nice and cozy and comfy. And so I'm going to do my best. I probably won't be perfect at it either. To allow us to just simply wrestle. And if there are times when I'm just like, I don't know exactly how to do this, and I hope that you will receive that well. Sisters and brothers, I'm excited about this journey in the New Testament. I hope, I pray that you will follow, that you will follow all of us together on this journey. And that perhaps for the first time or maybe the 50th time, you will experience an unbelievable grace. And as you do so, you will not be afraid to allow the light of that grace to shine deeply into your life and to know what it is that God may be calling us to lead. Grace, dangerous. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we do believe that well before we could ever reach out to you, you reached out to us. That you continue, Lord, to reach out to us. And even though we may want to think that we need to achieve that, that we need to accomplish it, help us first and foremost to see in Scripture the ways in which you have loved us deeply. The ways in which you call us to follow you. And I pray, Lord, that we would have the courage to repent, as you said, which simply means to turn and to walk in a different direction, to walk in the direction in which you are already leading us. Help us to not be afraid, to leave behind whatever it is that you long for us to leave behind, that we might travel more lightly and might follow you and never be the same. Amen.